Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Freed from the shackles of oppression, the big cat of broadcasting, George Galloway, returns on the radio spark. The voice of true reason. Come and have your say on the mother of all talk shows. Uncensored, unshackled, unleashed. Welcome to the mother of all talk shows with me, George Galloway, coming to you from London but reaching you all over the world. Talk about the law of unintended consequences. It is the open university of the airwaves. It is the college of knowledge. And there's still no tuition fees. Now Radio Sputnik reaches across the whole globe and so does this show. So will your point of view. I'll tell you later how you feed that into me. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway, only on Sputnik Radio. Here's how. 028, sorry, 02077-982-255. Write that number down so I don't have to keep repeating it. You can also, of course, tweet me, as many of you already are. Tweet me at George Galloway and at RTUK. Don't forget to at both of us. That's at George Galloway and at RTUK. Unusually, you can even Skype us. You can send me a video message to the following Skype address, at GGMotes. That's G-G-M-O-A-T-S. Tama is here. I know some of you will groan at that, but without Tama, this show would not go on. I've got a terrific team assembled, actually. Tama is in charge of it. Uh, But the others are Elizabeth Fgrave, Chris James, Elena Feklina, and Simon Scott. So if you've got any problems, talk to them. But I hope that there will be none of a technical uh, variety, at least. Now, as I said at the beginning, Sputnik radio itself stays above the great controversies. It merely reports them. Contrary to propaganda lies, Sputnik Radio has no agenda. It just wants all the agendas out there on the table. And they've given me the freedom over three hours every Sunday at this time to give you my point of view and to seek to elicit from you your response to my point of view. And the mother of all talk shows wouldn't be the mother of all talk shows if the legends didn't call in. 
for new viewers and listeners, the legends are people that have been with me, many of them, these last 15 years that the mother of all talk shows has been running on the radio. I'll identify them to you when their calls come through. And because we're an open university, we have faculties. So there are very clever people that I've identified as clever people. And when I introduce them, it will be as the professor of our Highland faculty, uh, just to give one example. We've even got a faculty in, in East Beirut. A man called Doogie is the uh, lecturer professor there. I hope, Doogie, that you're listening and that you will give the people of the world now the benefit of your point of view. We have a galaxy of international stars on the show this evening, and I mean international stars. Gideon Levy is not just the doyen of journalism in Israel. He's one of the top journalists, commentators, columnists in the whole world, and we'll be talking to him about the new real estate, the new Trump Towers in the Golan Heights and the deal of the century that uh, Gerard Kushner has just brokered. <laughs> Although I don't see it sticking myself, do you? Uh, the Bahrain conference will unveil just the economic side, that is the putative bribes to all uh, parties to settle the uh, now ancient conflict uh, as long as the lifetime of most people alive today between Israel and Palestine. We'll be talking to a man who knows about that, Gideon Levy. Prior to that, we'll be talking to a legend. John Leboutillier has been with me for, it seems like, a decade, talking through American politics. He's not just a commentator and broadcaster himself. He's a former congressman for the Republican Party from Long Island. Although he's a Republican, I guess he's still a Republican, I'm not sure how happy he was when he saw Donald J. Trump launch the 2020 election campaign from Florida. Orlando, I think it was. I stayed up late, very late, to watch it. I personally thought it looked quite formidable, and I thought that Trump looked quite formidable. It's going to need a special Democratic Party candidate to defeat him, I think. I'm not so sure that the people in the front of the race for that nomination could really be described as special, but hey, I'm just an enthusiastic amateur. We'll ask John, and we'll ask Samira Khan, uh, formerly of this parish, formerly of RT America, now an independent political analyst and uh, commentator herself, and actually also a former Miss New Jersey. In fact, she might have been Miss United States of America, but she got bumped out of the competition for political reasons. I seem to remember she scaled a fence to gatecrash the event in her high heels. I wonder, did Donald Trump run that pageant when Samira Khan won that position? We'll be uh, talking also to Charles Shoebridge. Charles is a former soldier, a former police officer. He is, let's say, well acquainted with intelligence matters. He's an intelligence expert. That's an anodyne way of putting it. I want to talk to him about the crisis in the Gulf. 
Because if Donald Trump had not called back those bombers that took off from those aircraft carriers in the Persian Gulf, we'd already be at war and this show would have a very different character. That is if we were able to get in in order to make it. Because if Trump had fired once at Iran, Iran would have fired back 10 times. That's what they said just 24 hours ago. If the United States fires once at us, we'll fire back 10 times at them. That presumably would have had the war lobby in the United States bellowing for another limited American strike. And Iran would have answered that tenfold too. And before you know it, the whole region is in flames. The whole world, perhaps, in danger of being in flames. Don't think I'm exaggerating that. I have myself nothing whatsoever to do with the Islamic Republic of Iran. I'm not defending them for profit or for popularity. As a matter of fact, there's neither profit nor popularity in doing so. I'm defending Iran because it's right. It's right that the Iranian people should not be made to suffer on a bogus pretext connected to the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, but it's also right that the rest of the region and the world be spared the horrors of what could turn into World War III. That's why I'm trying to stop the war in the Persian Gulf, not because I like the political system in Iran. As a matter of fact, I don't like it. But it's actually none of my business what kind of political system they have. But it is my business if the world goes up in flames. You think I'm exaggerating? 35% of the world's oil comes through the Strait of Hormuz. More than a third of all the oil in the world. If that strait is blocked as it would be within a matter of a couple of hours by Iran, then none of that oil will go through the Strait of Hormuz. Moreover, and here I'm just guessing, that Iran will set the oil fields of America's partners in crime in the Persian Gulf as soon as it itself is fired upon. So do the math, as they say in America. Nothing going through the Strait of Hormuz, oil assets on fire in the Persian Gulf, in the satrapies of the United States in the region. You won't be able to buy oil. Not at $100, not at two, three, four, or $500 a barrel. And so the wheels of industry and commerce around the world will grind to a halt. Doesn't seem like a sensible thing to do, does it? Certainly not in the run-up to a presidential election. I said earlier that Trump looked pretty formidable to me. What did he look like to you? Let me know. Give you the number again, 02077 982 255 or tweet me at George Galloway at RTUK. And when I look at the donkey derby of Democrats lined up to uh, seek the nomination to stand against Trump, I'm not that impressed. I supported Bernie Sanders last time and I'm supporting Bernie Sanders again, not because he's in line with every one of my ideas. As a matter of fact, he's out of line with some of my most important ideas. 
Not because he's young or handsome, he's neither. Not because I think that none of the other candidates have any merit. Actually, I think that they do. But the one man who can win the nomination and can defeat President Trump is Bernie Sanders. Of that, I am absolutely persuaded. But you can try and dissuade me out of it. I think that Bernie would have won if the Democratic Party hadn't rigged the primary season so that Hillary Clinton could then waste $1 billion on losing to Donald Trump. I'll go further. I'll say that Hillary Clinton was the only person in the United States who could have lost an election to Donald Trump. So it was a self-inflicted disaster. I'm sorry uh, to those of you listening, watching, who are supporters, maybe even members, maybe even elected members of the Democratic Party. But that is my considered view. You brought Donald Trump down upon yourselves and you brought him down on America and you brought him down on the world. Now, I was not happy that Donald Trump was elected president of the United States, but I was very happy that Hillary Clinton was not elected as president of the United States. As a matter of fact, I think if she had been, we'd already be at the war that Trump seems to have narrowly averted for now. And my message to him would be to get rid of John Bolton, get rid of Mike Pompeo, because President Trump, they are trying to drag you into the swamp, to coin a phrase. And if you voluntarily step into that swamp, well, swamps being what they are, you'll never get out of it. Certainly not in time to win a second term of the presidency in 2020. We'll be talking to Samira Khan, former Miss New Jersey, former Miss RT America, about Khan and Trump. Who's Khan, I hear you asking around the world. He's the mayor of London who has put himself into a frankly ludicrous ongoing Twitter spat between him and the President of the United States of America. I think Mayor Sadiq Khan has more important things to do, like deal with the knife and gun crime epidemic in London. I'm not really exaggerating when I tell you that the streets of London are running with the blood of our young people. Stabbings up, shootings up, crime up. If I was the mayor of London, I'd be out there on the streets in a high-vis jacket and I'd be speaking about nothing else. I'd be doing nothing else. I'd be spending on nothing else than on my primary responsibility of keeping Londoners safe from crime. We'll be talking to Anthony Day, presenter of the weekly Sustainable Futures Report podcast, because even old-timers like me are having to switch on to the issue of climate change, of global warming, because actually I'm baking hot in here. It was 27 degrees here today and we didn't even see the sunshine. The world is heating up. Look at the heat map. Some of the world record temperatures are 
currently being recorded. Almost unbelievable. We'll be talking about Bob Dylan. I don't know about you, but I've watched Netflix's Rolling Thunder Review twice in a week. Martin Scorsese directed it. It is utterly spellbinding, utterly brilliant. Mind you, I'd watch Bob Dylan reading a telephone book. I have everything that Bob Dylan has ever made in triplicate and more, multiple copies. I go to see him wherever he appears, here, anywhere, near me. And I'll do so until his endless tour, his never-ending tour, finally comes to an end. But 50 years ago, exactly, Bob Dylan got tangled up in the Isle of Wight. You may well be asking, what, where is the Isle of Wight? Well, many British people, including me, have never been on the Isle of Wight. Don't even know how to get to the Isle of Wight. But 50 years ago, Bob Dylan decided not to perform at Woodstock despite or maybe because of the fact that Woodstock was right on his doorstep and decided to come to the newly established Isle of Wight Festival instead. And it's the 50th anniversary Isle of Wight Festival coming up. Bill Bradshaw is a Fleet Street legend. There's hardly a paper on Fleet Street he hasn't been in, and a couple of them he was the assistant editor of. He's also a well-known face on Sky Television, Sky Sports. He even lived in the Isle of Wight for a while, so he's the obvious person to have written the book, which is called, unsurprisingly, Bob Dylan at the 50th anniversary of the Isle of Wight Festival. And then there's Adam Gary. For those of you who don't know him, I repeat, he is the cleverest man in England. Quite a clever man is Tamar Aspahani, who you may recall starred in one or two of the episodes of the Mother of All talk shows at a previous address. He's here, amongst many other things, to tell you how you can Skype me. Listen to this. Welcome to the mother of all talk shows, new and improved and unleashed here on Sputnik Radio or Sputnik News, whatever you want to call it. For those of you listening on the radio, this may not be uh, relevant to you, but for those of you that are watching and for those of you that are listening that do want to get in touch, that have something to say, then join us on Skype. What you have to do, for those of you that are watching, for those of you that are listening also, please make sure that you can do this as well, find GG Motes, which you can do in the search the Skype bar, which is usually on the left-hand side of your Skype menu. You'll be able to find GG Motes. The name of the program is called Motes Unleashed. Once you get there, you have to go to the message window, which is here. For those of you, again, listening, it's the main window to the right. And at the bottom, there is an icon with a little video. You click that, and that will allow you, hi, everybody, to record your message. Record that message, and then send it through to us. 
Once we've got that, we will look at those messages and then we will play those to George. You can ask us anything. You can ask Adam anything. If there's something on your mind that you want to get off your chest, then rent, send us those videos. But until then, I'll hand you back to George. Well, now you know how to Skype me. Let me remind you how to call me. It's 02077 982 Or tweet me. I hope many of you are. I've not got them yet. Uh, on uh, George Galloway, at George Galloway, as well as at RTUK News. Don't forget to at both of us. Well, the first guest on the first edition of the Unleashed Mother of All Talk Shows is John Libutillier. I told you about him earlier. Uh, he has a voice like honey. Uh, he's coming to us from the eastern seaboard, I think, of the United States of America. He has his own television and radio shows, uh, but he has always been kind enough to join me on mine to help us through United States politics and United States great events. We were partners throughout the last primaries, partners throughout the presidential election, and I'm hoping any minute now he'll be on the line and I can talk to him. He is a Republican, but I give you this warning uh, before he comes on that uh, he is not a Trumpian. A Republican, but not a Trumpian. I'm not sure if any of those are left. Now, with a bit of luck, we've got John Labutilli on the line. Uh, John, are you there? I am, George, and I'm so honored. It is, it's absolutely exquisite to hook up with you again uh, across the airwaves and be broadcasting in the United States, uh, too. I've given you uh, the big talk up. I'll not embarrass you by doing it again. But let's just say I call you the sage. I think your sagacious understanding of American politics is second to none. Even where I disagree with your conclusions, I utterly respect the reasons, the analysis by which you've come to those conclusions. So let's kick off with your own party. I stayed up late, I mean late, to listen to a very long speech by Donald Trump in Orlando, in Florida this week, John. And I looked at the crowd, I looked at the stadium, I looked at the fundraising, $25 million raised on the night. I've got to say, Donald Trump looks quite formidable to me. He does. First of all, any incumbent president in our system is favored to get reelected, especially when the economy is strong, which statistically it's very strong. And whether he has anything to do with that doesn't matter. If he's in office when the economy's good, he gets most of the credit. If he's in office when the economy slows down, whether he has anything to do with that, he's going to get the blame. And it's better view him as formidable. Uh, he'll have no trouble securing the nomination, so he's halfway home right away, whereas the Democrats obviously have to each other for a year and a half. Uh, but there are other things that are going on with him that indicate he's in a lot of trouble. Uh, he's got a huge negative on him. In a new Monmouth poll that came out on Friday, George, uh, nationally, 37% said he deserves another term. 59% said we need someone new in the Oval Office. 
That is impeccable fair numbers for an incumbent president. How does it compare, John? How does it compare with previous presidents? Uh, worse. It's worse. Where it's been worse ever since the beginning of his presidency is that the disapproval number in almost every poll of him has been around 55%. And they ask this question, do you approve of the job Donald Trump is doing or do you disapprove? You know, his approval's in the low to mid-40s and disapproval, as I said, is in the mid-50s. But when they ask it this way, do you strongly approve or disapprove? It's two twenty system. Forty-eight percent strongly disapprove. Only twenty-four percent strongly approve. And that, I think, is what is going to trip him up, John George. He has antagonized so many people—people people of color, women, young voters—and they didn't vote in high numbers in 2016 because they didn't like Hillary. And they figured she's going to win anyway, so what the hell, I don't need to vote. And Trump is, they've been kicking themselves ever since. And I believe next year will be the highest turnout ever in American history, especially among anti-Trump voters. Every young voter and every woman who can, who hates Trump, they're all going to come out and vote. Yeah, the majority of women voted for Trump last time. Of course, he's got a very uh, high level of disapproval amongst uh, liberal women, uh, university-educated women, uh, urban women. But the majority of women actually voted for him last time. I'm not sure that's true. I, I think the number was 53% of white women voted for Trump, even though, obviously, his opponent, Hillary, was a white woman. That is itself I, I, I a remarkable think, number. That, that see, to me, this is, you're a, 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 a political guy, and your listeners need to know that sometimes political analysts overanalyze. <laughs> and I think we need to dumb it down for a minute and go back to 2016 and realize a couple facts. Number one, they were the two most unpopular nominees in the history of the United States. Hillary Trump, least trusted people ever to be nominated by a major party in America. The whole election to me, George, was the Democrats didn't vote in high enough numbers. They stayed home. Black voters. And Trump. This line is very bad uh, for me. I don't know. Uh, I hope it isn't for the listeners, but I, I can barely hear John. John, if you can still hear me, I want to ask you. I hear you, George. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I, I want to ask you now about the Democrats. Um, Joe Biden uh, is the is the man in front. It's my view that. He is Hillary Clinton without the lipstick that he, too, yeah. would turn out to be a disastrous choice for the Democrats. What's your take on that? It could be. It's too far away to even have a clue what's going to happen with them. Um, on paper, Joe Biden is a problem for Trump because he's a white man who comes from the Rust Belt area of Pennsylvania. 
And that's, of course, where Trump eked out a victory by 77,000 votes, George, Mm. combined Mm. to win Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Joe Biden is from Scranton, PA. He's from the heart of the white, blue-collar, rust-belt voters. Uh, He also has chronic foot-and-mouth disease. But he's not Hillary in the sense that he's not crooked. You can't label him as a crook. Yeah, you can say he's been around a long time. But he's a nice guy, Joe Biden. No one ever said, oh, Hillary's a nice person. They didn't like her. She's unlikable. And they didn't trust her. But it's up for the Democratic voters. We have eight months before they even start voting. We don't have a clue what's going to happen. Well, is it, though, John, up to the Democratic Party voters, or is it up to the DNC? Uh, Because the Democratic Party voters arguably uh, were cheated out, certainly manipulated out of the possibility of picking anyone but Hillary. Are they going to try that? Are they going to try that again? Well, okay, it's a great point. They have a thing called superdelegates, which are elected officials, county officials, party officials, and they get to go to the convention and vote along with the elected delegates who are selected in our primaries and caucuses starting in January and February in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, and so forth. And the superdelegates hated Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders, three years ago, you know, he's not a Democrat. He's an independent running in the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party rallied around Hillary to prevent an outsider from coming in and taking over the party. I don't know. This time around, it's a different dynamic. I think the number one thing for Democrats, what I hear all the time, is who can beat Trump. That's the biggest issue for them, not who's going to be the best on tuition or health care or any of those very important issues. No, the number one issue is we've got to get rid of Trump. And, and I think they're going to decide that in the primaries, which guy or gal measures up against Trump the best. Well, let's talk about a gal. Uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, is... Uh up there in the in the front of the of the pack uh she seems to be the person that people on the left of the party believe can stop bernie sanders never mind stopping trump stopping bernie sanders seems to be a major priority for them tell us about her john ready to pop the question The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. 
Well, an extremely diligent, hardworking woman all her life, a, a law school professor at Harvard and elsewhere, and been a senator for six years from Massachusetts. Uh, she's definitely uh, decided to run a campaign based on her knowledge of every issue and having a plan for every issue. So you want a plan to fix something, she's your go-to person. And she is rising in the polls in the Democratic race, I think at the expense of Bernie Sanders, who I think is going down a few notches, because they're sort of fighting for the same voters, and they both come from neighboring states, Vermont and Massachusetts. And she is not to be uh, underestimated. She's sharp. Very interesting. Now, uh, when does all this kick off for uh, seriously, John? This week, George. This Wednesday night, you're going to have to stay up again. Uh, unfortunately, at 2 a.m. your time, 9 p.m. New York East Coast time, uh, they have two nights in a row of the first live Democratic debates. Uh, the ten, ten candidates drawn randomly for Wednesday night and ten for Thursday night for two hours each night. The Thursday night one will be better, I think, because it will have in it Joe Biden, Mayor Pete Buttigieg from South Bend, Indiana, who's on the upswing and a very good candidate. And it will have Bernie Sanders in there, too. And then there's always the unknown candidates who can surprise you and, and have a moment and rise up. Oh, Kamala Harris, I think, is that night also. Very interesting. That's Wednesday and Thursday of this week. That's the calendar Correct. set. John, uh, we're yep. going to have to talk regularly. I hope you're ready for that through the next uh, 18 months or so until the big decision. Um, I wish I had time to ask you, maybe in a word or two you can tell me, the latest eruption uh, of Jacques against Trump, uh, yet another accusation of misconduct towards women. Uh, is that going to run that story, that accusation? I don't think so, George. It came and it went. It's number 16. 16 different women in the last three years have come forward with very similar stories of Trump forcibly throwing himself on them sexually in a disgusting manner. It doesn't seem to hurt him among his voters. He just denies it and keeps on going, which is an amazing political phenomenon, this guy. Yeah, we never it's saw just, anything uh, you know. like this. If only, if only when we were in politics, we knew that you can actually just deny it and move on. That was John Le Boutillier, who is a former congressman for the Republican Party uh, and an analyst and commentator. Now, Gideon Levy is, as I said, the doyen of... Israeli journalists, there's nothing he doesn't know about what's going on in Israel, in Palestine, in the broader region, even right up to and including the crisis in the Persian Gulf. And I'm glad to say, honored in fact, to say uh, he joins us now as a columnist for Haaretz newspaper, of course. Gideon, uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us. It's my honor, George. The honor is mine, I assure you, sir. Let me start uh, close to home. Donald Trump's new towers in, uh, in the Golan Heights 
Uh, are people uh, queuing up to get, uh, get in uh, custody of one of these apartments? What's that all about? Not really. I mean, you need a lot of sense of humor <laughs> to, to take it seriously. It was a joke, it is a joke, and nobody took it seriously in Israel. By the way, even legally, this government, which is a government in transition, this government has no authority right now to decide anything. So everyone understood that this was a show, you know, for for some political reasons, but nothing more but a show. And there will be no settlement called the Trump Heights, for sure not in the coming future. <laughs> they may actually change the name if he loses uh, office or disgrace envelops him. Uh, speaking of disgrace, what's the latest in the criminal charges against your own prime minister and his spouse? There is nothing new. I mean, uh, the hearing will take place uh, in October, and until then, um, everything is waiting for the hearing. And after the hearing, he will be brought to justice. And after being brought to justice, apparently, I guess, this will end up in jail because the charges are very serious. How interesting. I mean, I've got to say this. I'm not, uh, as you know, a cheerleader uh, for the state of Israel, but it does deal more rigorously uh, with uh, its own uh, political class when they uh, cross the line into criminal behavior than other countries do. I mean, there have been more presidents and former prime ministers jailed in Israel than probably any other country in the world, and that's worth congratulating them for. Yeah, but it tells you also something about uh, the level of morality and criminality. <laughs> On one hand, you are totally right. It is really respectful that, uh, you know, a president was in jail for rape and the um, finance minister was in jail and a prime minister was in jail for corruption. On the other hand, I knew some countries in which there is no need for all this because the politicians are just not corrupted. I'm not so sure about that one, Gideon. I've got to tell you, I think in most countries... Uh, there, are, there could be ministers uh, uh, in jail. But let's move on to the, to the big subject. Uh, Gerard Kushner, Jared Kushner's uh, deal of the century. Uh, what can you tell us about that? The Bahrain conference is only going to reveal uh, the money. Uh, although my experience uh, of your region is that promises and pledges are not real money. Uh, and uh, even if the headline number of 50 billion sounds like a lot of money uh, for a relatively small number of people, it's only pledges and you can't spend them. Uh, but what's the political uh, deal, side of the deal? Have you got any insight into that? Because surely no one seriously thinks that just by uh, throwing out money at the Palestinians in the occupied territories, you're going to solve this conflict, which has now been raging for so many decades. First of all, you touched uh, one of the main points, and the, the point is that it's not money, it's promises, it's hollow words, at least at this stage. There, were, there have been so many peace conferences, such a long peace process, the longest in history, and it never led to nowhere 
and it will never lead to nowhere as long as Israel does not come to terms and decides to put an end to the occupation. Israel never meant to put an end to the occupation. Israel does not mean to put an end to the occupation. And I'm afraid that in the, at least in the close future, Israel is not going to put an end to the occupation. And all the rest, you know, are minor things. Yes, money can help the Palestinians. I would like you to, to draw your attention, George, to the fact that the Palestinians, as we crashed and forgotten as they are, they are courageous enough to say no to the United States. I don't know many people who say no to the United States today. And this is quite remarkable. It is remarkable, and, uh, and they are a, a remarkable people, I think, uh, forged under uh, the kind of uh, catastrophe that they have suffered. Uh, and considering their leadership isn't particularly popular uh, amongst the people, considering the levels of dissatisfaction with the political class amongst the Palestinian people, the decision is all the more remarkable uh, to refuse uh, the blandishments of Kushner and his Arab uh, bankers. Perhaps they already know what you and I know, that most of these pledges and promises will never actually be redeemed in any case. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, when I look at them, when they have so little choices right now, when they are so divided, so weak, bleeding, the Arab world couldn't care less about them. The West starts to forget about them. And Israel, we must admit, is at its, maybe at its strongest stage. Then to stand up and to say no to the White House, to the President of the United States, takes a lot of courage. I hope that this will lead them to a better place, even though I can't see now any scenario in which they are getting out of their really desperate in the situation. They are really, really uh, uh, without any hope right now. I don't see any hope for them. No, it's a very, very bleak uh, future. Though I, I recently interviewed the young girl, Ahed Tamimi, 18 years old. And I've got to say, the level of determination uh, of her, and I presume she speaks for many uh, people of her age, uh, is such that whilst nobody can see a way forward, nobody is prepared to uh, fall back. Nobody is prepared to have undergone all these sacrifices for nothing. So if necessary, we'll just keep sacrificing uh, until uh, something comes uh, out the other end of the tunnel, Some, something comes around the corner. Uh, so anybody banking on the Palestinians giving up because it's bleak and hopeless, is, I think, making a mistake. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. There is no sense of giving up, but there is a sense of deep despair and lack of hope. It's now the third generation of young Palestinians who have no past, no present, and above all, no future. And, uh, you know, as, as courageous and as devoted as some of them are, they see reality, and reality promises them very little. Let's not forget Gaza, the biggest cage on earth today. What can you tell to those courageous people? What prospects do they have for their own life, for their, 
for their freedom, nothing. And the world, I'm afraid, seems to be uh, quite tired and sick, sick and tired from all yes. this uh, endless conflict. Absolutely. Talking of conflict now, um, many people here, certainly in Britain, and I think also an increasing number in the United States, wonder whether this confrontation with Iran, which seems on the face of it to be entirely unnecessary, the, the rest of the world was quite clear that Iran was complying with its obligations under the JCPOA, and that a, that a crisis has been manufactured by the United States, unilateral withdrawal from the agreement. Many people here believe that this is being done at the behest of the United States' two closest allies, Saudi Arabia perhaps above all, but also Israel. Is there a feeling in Israel that that is so? Or are people really worried uh, about Iran? Unfortunately, unfortunately, in Israel, people are mainly worried about their next vacation and the next uh, going out for dinner. Um, Israel is right now uh, really a society in denial denying many dangers, not only the Iranian danger and or, or, or chance, yeah. But I, I, I totally agree with your analysis. There was a very good agreement or quite a reasonable agreement. Everyone could live in peace with this agreement. Donald Trump decided that this agreement is not good enough. I'm sure he was pushed by some of the allies you mentioned, and uh, here we stand in front of a quite uh, explosive situation. You know, right now it seems not dangerous. It can turn into a terrible danger within days. I hope this is not the case, but in Israel, life is as usual, business as usual, and I don't feel any sense of uh, understanding how explosive it is. It's a very dangerous game. Well, I, I said earlier in the show, uh, and I was echoing something that the Iranian government themselves said, that if, if one, one shot is fired at us, we'll fire sh 10 shots back, because they have to respond asymmetrically, don't they? Because if they allow themselves to receive what are laughably described as limited strikes, then the voracious appetite of uh, the U.S. war machine would be to level more and more limited strikes at them. So in a sense, the Iranian regime have every incentive to respond exponentially, disproportionately. And that brings into the firing line, if not Israel in the first instance, certainly America's allies in the Gulf and American targets in Iraq, for example, and also leads ineluctably, I, I think, to a, an acute sharpening of the conflict in southern Lebanon between Iran's allies, Hezbollah, and the uh, IDF, the armed forces of Israel. So you're right, actually, the balloon could go up more or less overnight. You could wake up one morning and everything can be on fire. 
absolutely, and still I have some uh, strange hope that uh, Donald Trump is talking a lot and shooting very little. Yeah. Uh, until now, he's three years in office, and he almost never shot, even though he talks like a big shooter. But let's hope that it will remain in the framework of his big mouth. And what happened uh, two days ago when he stopped the the jets of uh, of attacking Iran was uh, maybe a moment of of, of hope. Uh, you know, I am afraid that Barack Obama would have sent already his troops to Iran. And uh, and here we see this uh, extremist who talks really like a bully. But by the end of the day, does much less than he talks, and this gives us some kind of hope, not too big, because uh, he's unexpected. No, I agree with you, actually. I'm sure that Obama would have uh, uh, sent the bombers. I'm sure that a President Hillary Clinton would have uh, done so. The problem seems to me to lie, I agree with you, I don't think Trump wants, certainly not just prior to a presidential re-election campaign, the kind of totally unpredictable war that a war with Iran would be. Uh, but he's surrounded by people like John Bolton, uh, even Pompeo, the Secretary of State. They seem to love war, Gideon. Yeah, they even seem to be bloodthirsty from time to time. But finally, if the reports are true, he was more influenced by a Fox News anchor rather than by his own advisors. Yeah, Tucker Carlson, yeah. Yeah, Tucker yeah. Carlson of Fox News is uh, the man we need to thank for the fact exactly. that the, wor the world's not on fire right now. Absolutely, and you know, if he deserves it, he deserves it. The outcome was, at least at this stage, the outcome was very positive, and I think we should uh, say a good word on on. on Donald Trump uh, uh, at this stage. I agree, yeah. It, we, we, might, we might regret it uh, tomorrow morning, <laughs> but right now, uh, for a rare moment, he said the right things and did the right things. One day at a time, Gideon, that's all we can do. Just take it one day at a time. My, my friend, it's an absolute honor uh, to meet you over the airwaves. I hope we get the chance to meet in person while we're both still kicking around. You are a, a gentleman, a star, a reporter of great courage and clarity and brilliance, and we're very, very lucky to have you on the show this evening. Thanks very much Thank indeed. Thank you so much, George. Gideon Levy, uh, a gentleman, a columnist for Haaretz, and a man who writes very uncomfortable truths in Haaretz. You can just imagine how what he said to us this evening would be received oftentimes in Israel. Uh, Muhammad Iftikar says, George, will we ever see you on national TV like Question Time? This is national TV. These old hat terrestrial television stations are going out of business. Um, the last time I was on Question Time, I was uh, set up, you remember? It, uh, like the unintended consequences law I referred to earlier, those that thought they were going to do me down uh, in that setup actually got a bit of a surprise. I was Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, Bernard Breitnach says, if the Donald wants to nuke someone, 
encourage him to let one go at Tampa Bay. Hashtag Glazers out. This is a campaign to, uh, shall we say, change the ownership at Manchester United, my football team. Uh, SFL says the Phoenix has arisen. Congrats on the new format, mate. Multimedia and worldwide is where the mother of all talk shows deserves to be. Now on to business. Do you think Europe's reluctance to join the US in its condemnation of Iran is more to do with fearing an ever bigger refugee crisis than morals? No, I, of course that will be a, a factor, and so it should be. If uh, you don't want to have floods of refugees, the refugees don't want to be flooding out of their own country. Those into whom they flood don't want them to do so. So the answer is obvious. Stop bombing people, stop making war on people, and you'll have fewer refugees. We told them that at the beginning uh, of this 20 years nearly, getting on for 20 years from 2001 until now coming up to uh, uh, 2020. So the best part of 20 years, we've been bombing, invading, occupying, and generally uh, attacking people in a way that has caused the flood of refugees. No, I think myself that it's an understanding on the part of European leaders that this cannot possibly go well. And you heard Gideon Levy in Israel. He knows this cannot possibly go well. I think even British government leaders, and they've been the closest to Trump, uh, uh, Jeremy Hunt, saying that carefully, uh, he absolutely backed the American stance on the cockamamie idea that the Iranians decided to attack Japanese oil tankers whilst the Prime Minister of Japan was sitting down with the Iranian president in Tehran to find if there were ways that Japan could help Iran out of the jam. I know what we'll do, guys. Whilst the Prime Minister of Japan's here, let's attack his ships, supposedly said the Iranian leadership. If you believe that, I've got a bridge here in London I can sell to you. Keep the tweets coming in, keep the calls coming in. But most importantly, I want now to talk to Charles Shoebridge, former soldier, former police officer, investigator, intelligence expert. I want to talk to him about that very point. Charles, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure, George, and uh, congratulations on the new show, I should add. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate that. And I hope you'll be a regular with us. Now, mm -hmm. first of all, let's start with the British. Why did the British government give succor to what, by any normal standards, was an absurd theory that quickly got such legs that it almost led to World War III, that, Japan, that uh, Iran had attacked Japanese oil tankers and, in the second case, a cargo of oil bound for Japan. On the face of that, you couldn't make that up. Why, why did the British government fall for it? Well, it's an interesting point because uh, contrary to what you uh, would assume or believe if you read just the British media, um, this was actually quite a common position. Um, uh, either the West or world powers think that uh, Iran is responsible for this. But actually, when you look at the figures, uh, I think I tweeted it, something similar, that let's say there's 193 countries in the world, which approximately there are, 
Um, really, you could count on one hand um, the countries that actually came out and publicly backed the American stance. Um, I think there was uh, some country um, somewhere that was very heavily reliant on US-UK uh, aid, probably, along with Saudi Arabia, of course, the UAE, um, who you would expect being uh, sworn enemies of Iran that would come out with this stance, but then also um, alone almost in the world, uh, the United Kingdom as well, embarrassingly so, especially when literally uh, hours uh, after Jeremy Hunt declared that, um, with a slight difference, I would add, because of course Donald Trump said that uh, uh, Iran is certainly uh, responsible for this, and Britain said uh, Iran is almost certainly responsible for this. Ah, almost, almost certainly again. Almost, but of course that almost uh, designed, of course, to uh, protect the backs of those that uh, to adopted the stance um, when it uh, appears later on in life, as it often does in these cases, that people like yourself and myself will right to question this. And indeed, Jeremy Corbyn, of course, let's not forget, um, had already said that uh, he wanted more evidence. And of course, that's all he, was, all he said. But of course, within a few hours, in fact, a couple of days in this case, um, the EU, uh, large numbers of other powers, not least Russia, China, India and others, all said that um, on, on public as well, which is unusual, of course, because normally behind the scenes you would be saying this to allies, United States, but publicly they all said this grainy video that has been shown of um, an Iranian, um, allegedly an Iranian uh, uh, patrol boat actually going up to one of the stricken tankers five hours note after the incident, not before, but actually then removing what the Americans alleged to be a limpet mine, as they called it, was somehow proof that they had not just removed that mine, but also somehow attacked it as well. Um, the point is, again, we're in the same kind of area where we've been so many times before in the last uh, few years, where it may well be, it may well be plausible that despite all the things that you said, uh, correctly pointed to as motivating factors or otherwise, it may well be that despite all of that, that actually Iran did carry out this attack. But the point is, we just don't have any evidence whatsoever, and no evidence has been presented by the United States to support that uh, line of reasoning. And of course, if you're starting to mount attacks on people, even if it's cyber attacks, or whether you're then going to uh, actually uh, declare war on a country or actually carry out attacks of war even without declaring it, you need a lot more than just um, a bit of grainy video, which actually, even if the video was genuine, even if as a day later they produced full-color video rather than just black-and-white video, it still doesn't show anything which shows or it goes anywhere near proving uh, the complicity, uh, not the complicity, the culpability mm. of Iran in this. And the fact is, of course, that um, the British uh, assessment was based on two factors. Uh, I read the actual document that the uh, British put out, a very brief document. They said that um, the reasons why we're backing this American stance is for two reasons. One, because um, uh, Iran, uh, only Iran has the uh, means of capability of carrying out this kind of attack. And secondly, because um, Iran has previous uh, form for carrying out these attacks. In other words, a few weeks ago, where again, limpet mines were found on, um, a couple, on some ships that were close, uh, were parts close or moored close to the UAE. But the problem is with those two assertions is that they're incorrect, of course, because actually, when you think of people, uh, countries such as the US itself, Israel, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, you know, you know, the Arab Emirates, all of those have easily have the capability, as indeed the Japanese uh, Prime Minister pointed out subsequently, they have the capability, along with Iran, to carry out these kind of very basic attacks. And above all, of course, which comes back to your point earlier, they have the motivation to 
to discredit Iran and to try and sucker Iran or bring Iran into war. And then when it comes to the second British assertion upon which their uh, reasoning was based, that Iran was almost certainly responsible, this leg of the claim was that Iran has carried this out before. And in fact, there, again, there has been no proof that Iran carried out these attacks in May. And again, this is... So in other words, we've got two completely, if you like, fallacious strands of an argument um, that the British put forward. And repeatedly, we've seen that with uh, British foreign policy positions. They uh, say that uh, this must be the case. For example, the use of uh, 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 nerve agents, for example, in Syria, let's take it as one example, because in the past, um, let's say, Assad has carried out these attacks, or as here, in the past, Iran has carried out these attacks and then make that statement as if it's a proven fact that in the past those things happened. Whereas, of course, those were also equally evidence-free, largely evidence-free assertions. And so, yes, you've got the British position here, which is just really largely hidden from the British people, um, almost entirely makes us isolated in the world amongst other countries that absolutely, even the closest American allies, haven't rejected the American position, but they haven't accepted it. They've just said, well, there's just no evidence to support what you're saying. Now, um, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, the <coughs> leader of the Labour opposition to the government, did his duty, which was to hold the government to account. The government made the statements you have just been referring to, and Jeremy Corbyn said, are you sure? And he said, are you sure? on the basis that they have made similar ringing pronunciamento on matters of the gravest importance only to find those quite quickly in some cases falling under very severe doubt. You've mentioned one, uh, the uh, insane idea. I continue to say that just when the war was won, uh, the Syrian regime decided that now was the time to launch a chemical weapons attack on civilians in Douma so that we can draw the United States back into the war. Now, that has come under very, very serious doubt. But go back to the beginning uh, of our uh, uh, issue on uh, the mother of all talk shows. This is exactly the M.O. of the British government in the Scripple case, in the Salisbury poisoning case. Rush to judgment, rush to the dispatch box, say it's highly likely, I'm not certain, but highly likely, and then denounce as traitors mm. everyone who does what they're supposed to do if they're a journalist, or an analyst, or a political figure like Jeremy Corbyn, and say, are you sure? Um, comment on that, will you? Well, and again, it's doubly ironic, because as I, as I mentioned earlier, now bringing it into context of you know, the point you're just making, that literally within a day or so of Jeremy Corbyn uh, saying, and only saying, well, there's no credible evidence so far, we need further investigation. And of course, the implication of that was that we need some kind of independent investigation. Within just a day of him saying that and being absolutely condemned by so many British politicians and British media, actually then that precisely the same position was adopted by almost all of the countries around the world 
including the very closest uh, British allies. Um, and so, uh, and of course, that hasn't been largely brought to the attention of, uh, of the, the public. It's, it's left there hanging that Jeremy yeah. Corbyn is some kind of traitor because of this. Um, but actually, unspoken, it's actually the rest of the world's position as well. And increasingly, I think we're finding an, uh, again and again, when you look at, for example, the recent case, which I know you've covered in the past, but has had a recent um, development, of course, where uh, the United Nations uh, held that the, uh, uh, the British and the uh, Americans who are operating a base there, Diego Garcia base, are unlawfully still in possession all these years later of the Chagos Islands. And you've got a situation there where when you look at the voting there, almost no countries in the world, it was six countries, including Britain and including the US, but only six countries supported, out of 193 countries, supported the UK position. And what we're finding again and again in all sorts of these areas particularly, for example, again, with our support of Saudi Arabia in respect of Yemen, and again, in respect of Saudi Arabia in, in respect of uh, the Iranian situation as well, because when you look at a lot of it here, a lot of this is being driven, I think, behind the scenes by those countries that have got everything to gain mm. from um, uh, crushing the uh, Iranian government it's not, it, in respect of either sanctions. Let me ask or, you about or, one uh, of those, Charles, because it, it's not been a good week uh, for Saudi Arabia. Uh, the Jamal Khashoggi case exploded with the UN rapporteur saying there was highly credible evidence, not only that this was a premeditated murder by the Saudi state, but that the origin of the determination to uh, separate the head from the body and everything else from each other in cutting Jamal Khashoggi to pieces in the embassy in Istanbul goes right up to the very top, to the effective ruler of Saudi Arabia, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And then, the next day, the British courts found that British arms sales to Saudi Arabia for use in Yemen was unlawful. It's been a bad, a bad week for the head choppers. Well, and, and on top of that, George, of course, although it didn't get quite as much attention here, perhaps understandably, Yet again, um, and further up the chain, on Thursday as well, the same day or whatever day it was this week, that the British High Court effectively put a, a ban, albeit probably only a temporary ban or suspension on arms exports, uh, or certainly on the issue of new licenses. Um, the U.S. Senate also voted again to block um, U.S. Um, arms sales to, um, to Saudi Arabia, although, of course, Trump uh, can and has in the past said that he would override that. And we need to think about Trump's business dealings here as well with Saudi Arabia, which is through um, uh, his son-in-law, uh, Kushner, um, and, and his close relationship with um, Mohammed bin Salman himself, who's personally, as you say, almost uh, not exactly indicted here, but certainly under very grave suspicion. And an issue, again, that I think the British government, the American government, and indeed some other Western governments would very much like business as usual to continue with Saudi Arabia um, as it did in the past, um, but, of course, the UN and others making it increasingly difficult because they're not letting this issue of Khashoggi disappear. But then when we look at that, again, back to this, bringing it back to Iran, we've got a situation where within the Saudi administration, within the Israeli administration, the UAE administration, and above all, of course, in Trump's administration, if not Trump himself, there are individuals which he, to be honest, has surrounded himself with. We're talking about people like Bolton, people like um, uh, uh, Pompeo, who seem to believe that they can repeatedly punish Iran, despite the fact that, of course, as we know, 
it is in complete compliance with its obligations under the nuclear deal, which it was America that reneged on, not Iran. Um, and nobody disputes that apart from two countries, Israel and America. But everybody else, including the European Union, Britain, all agreed that Iran was completely in compliance with its obligations. America pulled out of that. America, including Trump, wants to put pressure on Iran to come to some new agreement, which actually will completely cripple Iran in any way as an adversary, particularly of Israel, of course, and of Saudi Arabia. So you've got a situation here where it seems to me you've got people like um, Trump's closest advisors and uh, cabinet ministers, if you like, really do believe that they can just apply endless pressure, including limited military strikes, which is what, of course, they were pushing Trump to do in the last couple of days, and that somehow this is going to subdue Iran without provoking a colossal war, and a war with Iran, which would make the war uh, on Iraq um, really seem like a, a, a sports game or something like this, which, of course, it clearly wasn't, because Iran is a formidable military power. It is a formidable economic power, could be, if the sanctions were lifted. And, um, of course, geographically, uh, it controls uh, much of the less West's livelihood and lifeblood through, of course, the oil routes through the Straits of Hormuz and elsewhere. And, of course, this is why the Europeans particularly, not just, of course, do they see that there would be floods of refugees coming um, that would make, again, Syria and uh, Libya, the problems that were caused by those uh, destabilization operations, uh, again, seem very small by comparison, but also, of course, would cripple, probably not just Europe's, but the world's economies when, when, when oil price goes through the floor and when a war breaks out that because Iran would have to rely on asymmetrical warfare, in any straight combat with America, of course, it's going to lose. But of course, it's, not, it's going to employ methods that are to its advantage. It will be using Hezbollah. It will be using other groups um, that have all vowed to defend Iran. And America would pay an extremely um, high price, in my view, including militarily, um, for its actions. And I think Trump knows that himself. Trump said that he didn't launch this uh, attack because at the last minute he considered that 150 Iranians would die. I think you and I, George, know, and I think most military analysts would know, that if 150 Iranians died during that attack, that would be a small number compared to the number of Americans and subsequently Iranians that would die in the spiral of violence that would inevitably result. And that seems to be either have not dawned on people like um, Pompeo and Bolton, or perhaps more likely they actually just don't care because their main aim is simply to subdue Iran as a country that hasn't actually rolled over and given in to American demands. Well, I've seen some mistakes in my time made by governments and statespeople, but there would be nothing like the mistake mm. of attacking Iran. Charles Shoebridge, thanks for joining us. Let me bring you some breaking news. Saudi media say at least eight are injured in an attack on Abha airport. Earlier, Yemen's uh, so-called Houthi movement, the Al-Ansar uh, movement army, said they had targeted Abha and Jizan airports in southern Saudi Arabia. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. ...with drone attacks, Reuters reports. Now, Tamar said immediately that he heard this news. He told me that he used to live exactly there. Tell us, Tamar, the kind of place it is, how big an airport, 
how vulnerable to attack from Yemen, uh, counterattack, I should say, because, of course, Saudi Arabia is bombing Yemen every single day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Abha is one of the last sort of big cities on the south of the, uh, of, the, of the country of Saudi Arabia, very close to the Yemeni border. It's actually on a mountain, so it is, I think, something like 3,500 feet above sea level. Um, and in actual fact, that's where the stealth bombers were based during the first Gulf War. So the F-117 Nighthawks flew out of Khamis Mshid military airport, and they did their right bombing runs into Iraq from there. So it's quite a distance away, um, and it's quite a vulnerable place. When we lived in Saudi, we actually had to move. We went to school on an American compound. Our American compound was targeted, and actually one of the, the school was actually hit at some point in, uh, during the Gulf War as well. So it is a very easy area to target, but there is a big military presence down there. Well, this tells me two things. First of all, that uh, Saudi air defences are not very uh, good. Uh, perhaps they should buy some of those uh, fancy Russian uh, hardware, which seems to defend people pretty well. Well, they're not buying any UK stuff anymore, are they? Well, uh, let's hope not. Uh, and secondly, uh, that the uh, Al-Ansar uh, movement have the means of bringing the war to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I think, I mean, there is, there is an element of that. I think getting any further north might be a bit more difficult. I mean, as you move up, you get to the bigger cities like Jeddah and obviously Mecca, which is a, a little bit further up as well. Um, but it is pretty kind of quiet in that area. There isn't much. Jizan is obviously, and then you've got on the far, on the far east, you've got the Haran and the Mam, which are the big oil areas where um, Aramco and, and all the kind of the big oil companies were. So, and if you remember, of course you remember from the first Gulf War, the Haran was targeted many a time by the Iraqis. These are all areas in which they can quite easily attack. Whether they thought that the Yemenis the, the movement were able to get it is a completely different matter. Yeah, because of course drones are not, uh, uh, I mean you yourself have a drone license, uh, you're the only man I know that is licensed to, uh, to fly uh, drones, um, but an attack that's big enough to injure eight people, we don't know their medical condition yet, uh, that's not just your ordinary uh, drone that you buy over the no. counter at Halfords, is absolutely it? Absolutely not. And, and uh, uh, no, absolutely not. And, and what's more telling is this is the second attack on Abha Airport in a week or two weeks. Uh, so what that tells you really is, and it's pinpointed, the first target I think was the control tower, so the air traffic control tower. So it's not that these are targeted attacks with specific, they're, they're able to hit the airport with accuracy, and it's a civilian airport. That's the other thing to remember as well. Now, uh, finally, uh, the war has dragged on and on in Yemen. Uh, it's not that long ago the United States said that it had to end, they even gave a, a date, time and place for the peace talks uh, that were going to bring it to an end. Uh, those dates and times have long passed. Is there anything that you know of in the air that uh, leads us to believe a negotiated settlement to this conflict can be reached? There's 100,000 dead Yemenis, most of them women, children and vulnerable people. Yeah, but there was many, many more during the Iraq war, and we didn't see an end to that. There were many more in Libya, there were many more in Afghanistan, there are many more wherever these troops hit the ground. And I think that's one of the reasons there was a reluctancy on all of the Western powers to get boots on the ground. Um, whether or and I think probably, ironically, that's the problem, because one side doesn't see an end, and the other side doesn't see the end either, and they don't think anybody's going to get involved, so they'll just carry on the way that they are. And I think that's the problem. The civilians are going to be hurt 
And they always are in conflicts like this. Thank you very much indeed. That's breaking news. We'll uh, bring you up to date uh, with any further uh, breaking news. We're talking here on the Mother of All Talk Shows about events all over the world. We haven't even had time yet to talk about Britain, where uh, it's exactly three years to the day since Britain decided to leave the European Union, and we still haven't left, even though the Prime Minister said literally hundreds of times that we would be leaving uh, earlier this year. We didn't. Uh, we have another deadline, the 31st of October. Uh, the Conservative Party leadership candidates for Prime Minister are Boris Johnson and uh, Jeremy Hunt. Uh, only Johnson has said unequivocally that we must leave by October the 31st. If you've got a point of view on that, let me have it, 02077 or tweet me at George Galloway at RTUK News. Well, I did promise you Samira Khan and like a, a vision, she has just uh, appeared before me. Samira, thanks uh, for that. Let me get the silly stuff out of the way. It just struck me when you won Miss New Jersey in 2015. Was Donald Trump running the pageant? Well, Donald Trump was running the Miss Universe pageant, which is based in the U.S. I was part of the Miss World organization, which is a U.K. organization. Okay. Um, run by Trump's rival, Julia Morley. Ah, so yes. it wasn't such a narrow escape. It's just I got worried about you when I see some of the stories about Trump. It worried me that a friend of mine might have been in close proximity well, to him. Actually, he had a pretty good reputation in the pageant world before the election. All of those stories came out during the election at the same time. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Uh, and, of course, uh, there's no uh, necessity on us to believe the story of anyone making accusations, but there have been rather a lot of them. That in itself also is not clinching evidence. It's but, Trump's uh, character, so it's believable. Yeah. Um, and we have a guy here, Boris Johnson, who's running mm -hmm. to be prime minister, and... The more I look at the two of them, I mean, they're not actually, although they've both got mops of blonde hair. They look alike. Uh, and they, <laughs> they don't look dissimilar. There are many, I mean, Boris Johnson's a very much more cultured figure than, uh, than Donald Trump is. But they do seem to have the same attitude to women, mm -hmm. that women are things to be grabbed uh, by whichever part of the anatomy uh, you decide. Uh, and that women are just not that important to them as uh, people that need to be respected, uh, people that need to be cherished. Yeah, that's Trump's outlook pretty much in a nutshell, and that did translate to the Miss Universe pageant because um, it, under his, I guess, rule, let's call it that, um, they didn't really pay attention to intelligence. It was totally based on glamour factor, looks, how great she walks the runway in a swimsuit, etc. But now it's taken a turn because after, uh, I think in 2015, because of all of these controversies and Trump's racism, uh, a bunch of sponsors pulled out and then he was forced to sell a Miss Universe. Ever since then, there's been a positive change, but it's not much. Mm. But, we'll but you, you should have then been in Miss USA and you were stopped from being so. Yeah. 
Yes, when I won Miss New Jersey, I took a pretty radical positions. I was anti-capitalist, pro-Palestine. Somehow I won Miss New Jersey even with that platform. Uh, when I went to compete uh, for Miss World America, um, I felt like they did not value intelligence. And so what I did was, when I found out that uh, that my ratings were pretty low in, uh, in, the, uh, in the wake of the pageant, I thought that I, I had to protest, right? So I got ready and I went to the main pageant, um, the Miss World America pageant, and then I protested, I got up and I disrupted. So wow. it was a lot. Now I know you uh, politically, uh, yeah. of course. I'm uh, much more comfortable talking about that. The pageant stuff makes me a little nervous. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> it's, uh, it's the previous Samira. Yeah, um, I uh, forgot. Let's, let's look at the uh, present. Mm -hmm. You were a speaker for Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. uh, you campaigned hard for him. You felt cheated by the DNC, as Absolutely. anyone in his campaign would. Now he's off and running again. Years later, he's not young. Uh, do you think he's got a chance this time? <sighs> if he's nominated, I think there's a slight possibility that he'd beat Trump. But will he get the nomination? That's the question. I'm not sure about that. I don't think the DNC want to give the nomination to Bernie Sanders. They would rather pick an establishment candidate like Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren and lose to Trump rather than nominate Bernie. Really? As bad as that? You yeah. I, I definitely feel like it's the same as 2016. Their mentality hasn't changed despite losing to an orange reality TV star. Nothing has changed. They've gotten even worse. Yeah, but I mean, the, uh, the reputation of Trump amongst Democratic Party voting sections of the community is so bad. We heard from John Obatillier earlier some of the numbers. So bad that you would have thought that if someone can actually beat Donald Trump, that would be enough to get the uh, nomination. Now, all the polling that I saw last time showed that Bernie Sanders would have beaten Donald yeah, Trump. Absolutely. And that therefore, the uh, presidency of Donald Trump is a self-inflicted disaster on the Democrats. Yeah, absolutely. The Rust Belt voters, the 9% of Democrats that uh, switched, voted for Trump, they supported Bernie during the primaries. If it was Bernie versus Trump, they would have voted for Bernie and Bernie would have won the election. And even... Um, it, the polling wasn't inaccurate. Trump and Hillary were always three to five points apart, but Bernie and Trump were 12 to 18 points apart, with Bernie in the lead, of course. And they ignored that. They rigged the election to stop Bernie from winning, I mean, the primary election, and then they Some lost. Some manipulated them, no doubt. Yeah, and then they lost. Uh, Elizabeth Warren admitted that the... Uh, election was rigged against Bernie Sanders and Donna Brazile she was uh, I think a vice chairman of the Democratic she Party was, yeah. so it, she, she's the one who was revealed to be feeding uh, questions questions in her job as a yep, CNN to Hillary Clinton pundit let's talk about Elizabeth Warren because many people believe I put this to Libertillier earlier that Warren is the stop Sanders uh, candidate in a sense she's pitching herself as being on the left mm -hmm. precisely to weaken the 
campaign of Bernie Sanders. How it looks to you? Absolutely, because if you look at uh, 2016, she did not uh, endorse Bernie Sanders. She waited till the last minute, I think uh, June 2016, and then she announced that she would endorse Hillary Clinton. Bernie was counting on her support. We were all counting on her support. That would have swung the primaries I, I, in our minds at the time. Um, Elizabeth Warren just strikes me as an establishment Democrat, despite what she's presenting herself as. I, I don't see any uh, difference between her and Kamala Harris. Uh, in fact, there are only three or four candidates that I find special or, or interesting. All of the other 872 candidates look nearly identical to me. Yeah. Let's, we can't talk about all of the candidates mm -hmm. in the time available, but uh, Warren, if she's running against Sanders, does she do him enough damage to ensure that he isn't picked? I think so, because she's splitting the progressive movement. A lot of people will vote for her over Sanders just because she's a woman. Sorry to say this, but it's the truth. But isn't it true that Joe Biden's, the, the ticket's got Joe Biden's name on it already? I feel the same way. Because the Democratic establishment want him more than they want her? He's the male version of Hillary Clinton. They're going to lose he's again. He's Hillary Clinton without the lipstick, uh, but hopefully a bit more attractive to swing voters in the Rust Belt. He, he, his class, religious, and uh, if you like demographic, uh, is precisely aimed at the Rust Belt. Look, we're going to have to stop uh, for now, uh, but we will talk to you again in the final hour, if you can stick around, Samira. Of course. It's uh, wonderful. I know you didn't jet in from the United States <laughs> just to see me, but I'm hoping that you will Thank you so uh, much. stick around. This is the mother of all talk shows. Let me give you the number again, 02077-982255. Or you can tweet me at George Galloway at RTUK. It is important, all the stuff that we are talking about now, but arguably the most important thing of all is climate change. You may not think that we in Britain are as seized of the issue as perhaps voters in America are or voters in other places, but my indication from younger people in particular, including younger people in my own circle, in my own family, is that this has rocketed to the top of the political agenda. Even the Conservative Party candidates running for Prime Minister are having to take that on board. According to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, we've got just 12 years to avert this catastrophe. Now, I don't know about you, but 12 years goes by when you're my age very, very quickly indeed. And if we're that close to a catastrophe, we better wake up and do whatever is necessary to stop it. Anthony Day is the presenter of the weekly Sustainable Futures Report podcast and a keynote speaker on sustainability to corporate audiences on floods in England, fires in the US, all signs that climate change is happening. And I'm hoping Anthony is on the line now. Anthony, are you there? We don't, it would appear, have Anthony Day. So I'll keep talking until uh, we get him. 
we are going straight to our first caller. How about that? Sam is in New York. Sam, welcome. Hey, George. How are you, man? You have the honor to be the very first caller to the mother of all talk shows, Unleashed. What would you like to talk about, Sam? Well, first, George, let me just say I'm glad you're back on the air. Thank you. you. Know, I, I try to call it. in every now and then when you were on, um, uh, on the other show. I do. I recall that. On local radio. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now we've, now we've, gone, your... we've gone global. Oh, yeah. No, I also want to say I, I loved you on the, uh, your interview with Jimmy Dore. That, that was good. Jimmy Dore is a very fine fellow, and he runs a great show. He's building a big public. Actually, somewhat to my surprise, including here in Britain. Uh, I, I have been approached by people in Britain all week since I appeared on his show, saying that they'd listened to it. Amazing. Well, you're, you're going to have a, tra a following soon enough here in the U.S. as well. Uh, I hope so. so I'm on every day on, uh, on RT America at noon. Uh, on oh, the yeah. in-question story I with Manila it. Chan, yeah. Anyway, sorry, yeah. Sam, go ahead. Well, no, I was just pointing out two things. Was, um, with, the, with Warren, I think, so a lot of progressives will support Bernie Sanders. They're, that's always going to be their number one pick. The, the number two slot is, always, is where it splits the progressive, in my opinion, because they're split between Warren or Tulsi Gabbard. And Warren is good on economic policies, but her foreign policy is just odious. I mean, just just does not have a good track record in that regard. Uh, there was a recent article done on Warren, and I, I really forget who published it, and I wish I wrote it down. But it was saying more along the lines of how the centrists are warming up to Warren more than they would with with Bernie Sanders, because they're they know that you know they will hit they'll take a hit on Wall Street. But she, you know, she hasn't really come out directly for Medicare for all. She always waffles and wavers and says, oh, we need to look at different options. You know that she's not going to be a threat to the military power because she's never really spoken out against war. So that's, there, there's that problem is she has more of a chance to draw the centrist Democrats. But I don't think she, lean, she takes away from Bernie. Uh, but I think the number two slot is always going to be split between Tulsa, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Tulsi Gabbard because Tulsi Gabbard has a, an amazing track record on foreign policy. She's introduced bills like the Stop Arming Terrorist Acts. When, right now she's running a new bill called the No More Presidential Wars. So I think that's... that's Tul Tulsi Gabbard's foreign policy is so outstanding. Uh, I, I could have written it myself. Uh, but she's weaker on the uh, economic issues, isn't she? Well, she, she's, she's stronger on the, she's good on economic issues, but, you know, with, uh, with Elizabeth Warren, she, to her back, she has the Consumer uh, Protection Bureau that she created. Yeah. So there, the, there's where she has her strength in it. But Tulsi is, is in, the same, in regards with Bernie on the same thing of Medicare for all, uh, decriminalizing, you know, uh, marijuana, et cetera. But, where she, but, you know, where Bernie also falls short is foreign policy. So that's where she gets the, the, the bigger thing. But the problem with it is every time Tulsi is mentioned in media, it's in a very, you know, uh, slander way of, oh, Putin puppet, oh, Assad apologist, which is always nonsense to anyone who actually, you know, does any Well, I mean, let's face it. If Bernie Sanders is the nominee, he's not going to choose someone else like him as his number two. Uh, all political logic is that you put someone in as your vice presidential running mate, 
uh, who can reach parts of the electorate that you can't reach. But I've got to say this, Sam. I, I, I fear that we are, uh, we are living in, in a fool's paradise here. I, I strongly believe that Joe Biden's got his name already written on the ticket. Well, Joe Biden, he, he, he's, he's just flailing so bad. So he's good when it comes to one-on-one debates. But when he does group debates, he's, he's horrendous. If he, I mean, if he was good, he would have been president by now. I mean, what he's run, like four or five times prior, he, he is just terrible. And every time he, you know, the saying goes, he opens his mouth, he puts his foot right in there. And I think you're going to see that in the, in the debate. He's I look forward to that. Yeah, he's, he, he's on, on, on Thursday night. Who do you think yeah, is going to come out the winner in these debates? Oh, um, so in the first round of debates, I think um, Tulsi Gabbard is going to come out strong if she's not as reserved as she always is. She needs to, you know, go straight for the for the jugular, if you will. Um, with the other, with Warren, you know, I'm not sure it can go either way with that one. Uh, in the second round of debates. Uh, oh, Bernie Sanders will wipe the floor with against them. I mean, all he has to do is just remind the public of all the things that Biden has supported. The other candidates, no one even knows half of them who yeah. they are. They're they're not anything anybody people. They're, they're the candidates who are going to that the media keeps pushing down on us, hoping we get them from the Kamala Harris's and yeah. you know the Cory Bookers. But when they start talking, it's you know it's nothing but platitude and vagueness. Same old, and same old, Biden, yeah. unfortunately, he doesn't get he, he no longer will appeal to middle America, in my opinion, because he can't appeal to middle America of, oh, I'm one of you when he's there's I mean, there's this thing called the Internet. And, you know, he's on these different uh, talks talking about how he supported these Trans-Pacific partner deals and he's all for these trade deals. I mean, that's no longer the whole Uncle Joe that that ship sailed already. Yeah. But well, uh, look, that's going, interesting. Going I'll your, tell you what, Sam, uh, call me back uh, next week and we'll review uh, what the uh, two series of uh, debates uh, actually delivered in practice. Because I've got to go to the United Arab Emirates and talk with Richard there. Richard, welcome to the show. Hey, good evening, George. Proving just how global uh, the whole thing uh, is. Yes, you're very global, but I'm, uh, I'm not sure what subject we're talking about now because you've, you've, well, you've covered a lot of I'll topics. I'll tell you what now. I was going to ask you. Uh, there's a, a report of uh, quite significant a drone attack on a Saudi airport, Abha Airport, this evening. Eight uh, casualties so far. Yeah. So, I mean, I suppose I'm asking you if you're able to. If you're not able to, just, uh, just say so. Uh, but how fearful are people in the Gulf uh, that the, he, he the, the, the balloon is going to go up, might go up, and if it does, it's going to burn exactly where you are sitting right now? Well, that's a, that's a chilling thought, George. Um, to be honest, um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of it, um, increased, what I'd call the security measures being taken here. Um, there's no, there's no um, news about what people should be doing to remain safe. If anything did happen, I've not seen anything locally. Um, but what I mean, about, we're, what we're about actually... media coverage of the Iran crisis? Um, I, I think, to be honest, the, the UAE media coverage is pretty balanced. Um, um, they're, they're not out saying directly that it's, that, that it's Iran that's done this. Or, um, the, the, the problem is, is, is that, that 
location that I'm uh, in is it's on the east of the Straits of Hormuz, so we're, out, we're outside of the Straits of Hormuz, but it's exactly where these attacks have happened. And from that point of view, it's driving, uh, there'll be no shipping staying in Fijira because it's considered too dangerous, the ships have to pay an insurance premium to stay here, um, so they're not going to be staying here. Um, the, the, the difficulty is, it's, it's surprising how the, uh, the, the, price of, the price of oil has shot up in the last... Uh, well, not really surprising. I mean, what, it's up... Uh, no, no, it's, I'm, it's I'm, up, I'm uh, saying that ironically. Yeah. Um, it's, I'm, up 6%, it's, it's up 6%, but it'll go up 600% if the fighting well, starts. Well, it, 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 it could possibly do that. But one of your previous callers suggested that there might be some, uh, some other agency involved to, to precipitate um, yeah. some some, you know, exacerbation of the situation and... Um, well, let me tell you what that, happened that, today, Richard. Uh, Saudi Arabia and the uh, Mujahideen Kalk, MK, they are accused by Iran of having jointly committed the crime against the two oil tankers in the Strait uh, a week or so ago. And Iran has released uh, audio of... Uh, audio traffic between these uh, terrorists, the MK are regarded as terrorists in most countries, uh, and uh, someone, I don't know who, in Saudi Arabia actually talking about this attack. Um, that seems to me a much more likely source of the attack than the Iranians, for the reasons well, I mentioned uh, earlier. Uh, also, the, the sort of footage of somebody going back to the scene of a crime to remove the evidence, yeah. it's, that's just... Uh, it's just daft. Especially, I mean... It, well, it is. I mean, it, it is. They didn't put a sticker made in Iran on those mines, I'm sure, no, you know. No, it's a bit like the Scripple affair, isn't it? That uh, you, um, you, you pick a weapon uh, that will most easily be hung around the neck of the yeah, miscreant that you want to hang around the neck. I, I had, yeah, I had lengthy discussions with a lot of people about that, and um, it, uh, the same, the same thing was, let's put our name on this. But there is also the the possibility that if you did want somebody to be warned off, you would tell them that it's me who's doing it, but you can't prove it. There, there's two elements to that argument. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, 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 I understand what you're saying, but no, you're right. Um, Look, it's not impossible that Iran did it, or the elements in Iran did it. It's not impossible, but it's much less likely than those who wish to provoke a war, who wish to turn Japan away from well, there's, its uh, long-standing relations with, uh, with Iran. One, there's more than one agent that would um, like to promote that, and you, you've mentioned Saudi and also Israel. Yeah, well, they're, um, the, they're the two most uh, likely, but the, there's also ISIS, Al-Qaeda, uh, Sunni fanatics who yeah, want well, to the, see the, a war uh, with I Shia Iran. They aren't really marine based, but I understand well, what you're saying. You say that, but, but they, they, they blew a big hole in the USS coal in the port in uh, Yemen, uh, which of course was yeah, but that's uh, in a port. That's in a port. That's in a port, George. These these vessels were maybe 15, 12, 15 miles offshore. Yeah, okay, but, were, but they, they attacked the USS Cole with a motorboat, 
But uh, here's the point that I've never uh, grasped yet. Why would you put a limpet mine uh, five feet above the water line? The point of a limpet well, mine is that it goes under the water line, so you sink the ship. Well, well, the, this is another contentious issue, is that if you want to really, uh, you know, develop a situation, you'll do something severe. And the, the, the four attacks that happened in May were um, pretty insignificant from a point of structural damage to the vessels. I, I mean, I, I know a little bit about this. I'm involved in the industry. Yeah. Um, and it was, it, was, it was minor damage. The, the, the actual cargo tanks weren't breached on those occasions. I don't know about the two that, that have recently happened, whether the cargo was breached. But if they'd have sunk a couple of ships, or then something serious would have happened, wouldn't it? Well, something I, I serious know, uh, might... No, I, I, I mean, I'm fascinated by your expert uh, testimony, Richard, and uh, I'm not uh, seeking to... I'm no expert, George. No, I'm just here. But, but you're there, and you know about tankers, and you know about shipping. It's fascinating. I hope you'll be our unofficial correspondent out there and uh, stay in touch with us. Well, I just want to say, George, I just want to say one thing. Um, I saw you speak in London, I can't remember the year, maybe 1995, a uh, Socialist Worker Party organised event. I'd never heard of you before, and I think you spoke a little bit about the Palestinian situation. And from then on, I've been very interested in that, and uh, I thank you for that, because... Uh, well, I thank you for... Uh, that, that's what I called you up for, actually, was to discuss how that could be redressed. Well, another, another time. Another, call next week, and I promise... Yeah, call next week, I promise oh. you, you'll get the chance to do that. Not literally unbelievable in the sense that you can't believe it. As a matter of fact, my next guest is the most believable man I know. He is the cleverest man in England, the polymath Adam Gary, who does have some transatlantic uh, DNA... I should say. We'll get to know Adam regularly uh, in the course of these shows. Here's some tweets, Adam. Operation Mockingbird says, I'm surprised you think that Trump is actually in charge. And Ian Robert Houghton says, good show, Gigi. Who are you backing to get us out of the fast-failing European Union project? And Martin Gruber says, you do seem to be completely behind the man-made climate change agenda. I'm undecided and would like to know why you are so certain, since you rarely seem to conform. Well, Martin, there wouldn't be any point in uh, denying something just because uh, other people are saying it. And, of course, there are voices that we have featured. Uh, Piers Corbyn, for example, uh, who take a dissident view. I take this view. I think that the earth is being despoiled by an exploitative economic system and by endless wars and despoilation around the world. I want to clean up our act. Whether or not, or not man is responsible for climate change. That climate change is occurring cannot be denied. That it may be cyclical, that it may go into reverse, that it may be irreversible, all of these things are possible. I'm not scientifically uh, smart enough to give you the best answer on that. But I do know that we should live uh, more simply. I do know that we should put into reverse those things that we can
to make our air better, our water cleaner, our animals more likely to survive, our children more likely to live full and pleasant lives. As to the EU, Adam, uh, there is a difference. The two candidates, Boris Johnson is unequivocal, he says. Uh, we're leaving on the 31st of October. The other fellow, Jeremy Hunt, is a bit more equivocal. Would you say that's fair? Well, we've got two candidates from the establishment. One is representing the establishment, and the other one is representing the mystery meat. Boris Johnson is very much the mystery meat candidate. Very compelling and interesting and intriguing at a personal level, which is why the various personal attacks uh, of all sorts tend to sort of brush off him like Teflon off an ironclad duck's back. But when Boris says that he wants to leave on the 31st, he then offers all sorts of qualifications, many of which are totally unrealistic, some of which are completely realistic, and the feeling I get is that the two main parties in Britain, the Tories, the Conservatives, and Labour, people are losing trust in them, and Boris Johnson, even though he retains some personal popularity, quite a lot actually, especially among traditional Conservative voters, when it comes to Brexit, I think the trust deficit is so big that the steamrolling Brexit party, the dark horse that is now in the front three, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. No, and uh, of course it's necessary to keep uh, Boris Johnson's feet to the fire. And if you look at the polling, uh, even mid-term, medium-term uh, polling now, the Brexit party, far from going away, is still Britain's biggest Absolutely. party. Uh, the Conservatives are only the fourth biggest party, but they're <laughs> running the country. For some around the world, that might be confusing, but they are literally our fourth party, but they are running the country in a minority government. Uh, there is another by-election coming up, this time in Wales. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Uh, but the big parties, Labour and the Conservatives, are now trailing a party whose single purpose, only purpose, and I hope it will remain its only purpose, <laughs> is to implement the decision that we made exactly three years ago today to leave the European Union. But of the two, Johnson's more likely to take us out of the EU than Jeremy Hunt. Would you agree with that? I would think that that is the standard way to think of it, and I think that it's generally true. Jeremy Hunt, <laughs> it's a difficult one there. Uh, he's, he's one of these grey suits. He's a very bland man. It's difficult to form an opinion of him that's very strong one way or another just because he's so bland. Boris is the Marmite candidate, but I think that he's going to easily win uh, the Tory leadership sure. contest. I think it's actually, frankly, quite irresponsible that they've elongated it so much, not least because, frankly, Hunt ought to maybe give Boris a phone call and say, can I keep my cabinet position if we do some sort of handshake in the name of unity. Getting back to what you were saying about the Brexit party, and I think your analysis is absolutely correct about that, for those out there who say, oh, Brexit's a distraction, the people are tired of, of Brexit, maybe they're tired of the way that the mainstream media, the unoriginal and unimaginative media are talking about it, but it is the issue. There is no denying it, because if it wasn't a party that actually does want to do what it says on the tin, the Brexit party wouldn't have 
have had so much success in last month's EU elections. So it ought to be a big warning siren to both the sort of mainstream Tories like Jeremy Hunt and people in the Labour Party who are sort of like an octopus in busily engaged in, in strangulating mm. itself, that this is the one issue that people want solved. And all of the most recent polls show that when it's a binary decision to leave with no deal or remain, the winner is still leave with no deal. And that obviously explains why the Brexit party is having such popularity. You know, I have a two-year-old child and she still thinks that if you put your hands in front of your eyes, uh, no one else can see you because <laughs> you can't see them. That's what the big parties are doing. They're Absolutely. pulling the covers over their head, hoping that the Brexit issue is going to go away and that the national conversation will turn to something else. Now, let me link the first question about Trump to our next caller, uh, Gilbert, I think, in Los Angeles. Uh, Gilbert, welcome to the show. Hello. How are you doing, George? I'm good. What would you like to talk about? Um, well, Venezuela. Go on. Uh, first, I want to thank you because, you know, you are really a stalwart of truth. And, uh, you know, even since, you know, back in the Iraq war, you know, your tour and everything, you really have uh, demonstrated that thank ethics you. and morals still exist. Now, to the Venezuela thing. Michelle Bachelet is out there right now in Venezuela. Uh, she accepted Maduro's invitation, which uh, he gave her last year. She's meeting with opposition, uh, the opposition and the legitimate Maduro government. Now, I wonder if Michelle knows about the Guaido scandal or if she's going to make a comment about it. It is a remarkable. It is a remarkable scandal, Adam. Uh, Guaido was a self-proclaimed president. Let's put the kindest uh, interpretation on it. That self-proclamation was then recognized by, most obviously, the United States, but also uh, many governments, important ones uh, around the world. And then Guaido, its leader, uh, announced a coup. The coup failed. The crowds in support of the recognized government of Venezuela, recognized by the great majority of states in the world, seems to have reasserted its control. Uh, and its rallies are much bigger than the rallies of the opposition. The army didn't break. The army didn't go over to the opposition's side. And now we learn that the Guaido camp has been stealing money sent to it on a gigantic scale, allegedly. Uh, it seems like grand larceny of charitable funds and funds coming in from governments, some of it uh, actually money that was uh, frozen and then redistributed uh, by uh, host governments of the Venezuelan state uh, sovereign funds. Uh, in Britain, for example, we seized a huge uh, amount of Venezuelan gold and some of these monies are being sent to a group of people who are allegedly actually stealing it for themselves. 
Well, they don't make coups the way they used to do. This shirt sleeve Pinochet is really more like your average sort of meatpacking glitterati, to use a Latin American reference borrowed from the great and even becoming greater Roger Waters. I think what the issue with Venezuela and the total damp squib that is Guaido, I mean, what a pity, just when Mike Pompeo learns how to pronounce his name and he's slipping from relevance. I think what we can learn from the dismal failure of a coup that was supposed to work like magic in Venezuela is that the war party in DC, they're shouting louder, they're expressing greater ambitions than ever, but they've had three massive failures over the last 12 months. First there was the DPRK, North Korea, where the Boltons and the Pompeos ended up losing to Trump. They're writing love letters to each other. C can one imagine uh, even John F. Kennedy and Kim Il-sung writing anything approximating love letters? This, it might sound funny, and I suppose to a degree it, it is, is, but it's good for peace uh, and very good for Northeast Asia, which is already one of the most prosperity-laden regions in the world. In Venezuela, you now have the man claiming to be legitimate without legitimacy, claiming to be honest without any mandate, and now claiming to be whiter than white, and it turns out he's something of a crook. So a massive failure, not only in the systematic sense, insofar as logistically it didn't work, but in the sense that the great hope of Venezuela is something of a great dope. And then to bring it to Iran, and I have to say, someone making a zero-sum statement, calling himself Operation Mockingbird, ought to know that there's always the lines between the lines, there's always the subtext. I don't think Trump is fully in charge, but crucially John Bolton, who this deep state morass wanted to push into being in charge, well, he had those two failures that we just talked about, and now he's had a failure in Iran. Donald Trump put the brakes on the war machine. If that's not something worthy of a hat tip, I just don't know what is. Well, uh, the one person, as you've just said, is common to all three of these fiascos, uh, and that's John Bolton. Yes. Uh, of course, there are others, L.A. Abrams, whom I knew in the 80s when he was presiding over mass human rights uh, offences, uh, crimes actually against humanity were taking place right across Central America on his watch. Uh, he's now back in charge of the Venezuela desk, but, but John Bolton is the man whose finger is in all three of these pots, and they've all turned badly for Donald Trump. Let's hear from George in Belfast. George, welcome. Uh, hi, George. Great to hear you back on you, the sir. radio again. Thank you. Um, my, my question would probably be best suited to uh, be spoken to Adam. Okay, go and ahead. It concerns my homeland. I live in Belfast, and I'm very concerned about what's going to happen on Brexit with regards to the backstop. There seems to be utter confusion here. There's confusion on the island of Britain, and nobody seems to know what way to get this over the line so as everyone here on the island of Ireland can have the best future possible. Now, uh, we should explain to the international audience who don't know what the backstop is uh, before you answer that question. So go ahead, Adam. Well, essentially, there's been a problem which quite rightly frightens many people, not just on the island of Ireland, but on the island of Great Britain, but it shouldn't because it's one of these manufactured projects that could, if managed improperly, become a 
a, a nightmare that becomes true. The essence of it is that if Britain leaves the EU in the proper sense on WTO rules, it will mean that the Republic of Ireland will be in a customs union and single market that is ruled from Brussels and that the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland will not be. This means that ostensibly, according to the fear mongers, there would be customs checks and some sort of border control dividing the island of Ireland, the island of Ireland, oh, bit of a linguistics lesson there, um, that would not be conducive to the harmonious nature that people of all varieties, Protestant, Catholic, etc., have generally enjoyed since the peace process of the late 90s, early 2000s. Here's why I think it's a load of fooey, essentially. No one in Britain actually wants to close the border between the uh, Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, not least because prior to the time that both countries joined the EEC, as the EU was known in its day, Irish people could live in Britain and vice versa. The countries traded together, and that was true even at the height of the original Irish independence movement, even at the height of the Troubles, although various border restrictions in terms of physical ramparts were a huge issue. But physical ramparts and actual customs checks are different things. People are confusing the nomenclature of trade with the nomenclature of security. Again, very devious, some of it accidental, some of it on purpose. So my solution is to say, look, the UK, which includes Northern Ireland, is going to keep the border open, we're going to allow the free flow of goods, and we can maybe have for certain lorries over a certain size some quick computer checks with various robots can do it, AI can do it, and then the ball will be in the EU's court. Say, are you people going to reciprocate, or are you people so hell-bent on destroying the democratic vote that people supported in 2016 that you, the EU, are going to risk bringing the troubles back to the Irish people. Instead of kicking the can down the road, people in Britain should kick the can on this issue to Brussels. Let them be responsible for peace. Well, how I wish that British government ministers had answered with the vim uh, that you just have, with the gusto that you just have, but they didn't, of course. In fact, the backstop was our invention. We, the British, brought this matter up and handed the EU bureaucracy, which, don't forget, is striving day and daily to wreck Brexit, to oh, yeah. somehow bring about a situation where the British people change their mind and stay. Uh, it's like uh, uh, the, uh, perhaps topically, a brute husband uh, imagining that uh, the wife that he has put upon and bullied and browbeaten, uh, will somehow decide to stay uh, as the lesser of two evils. That's the way in which the EU leadership has handled this. But there is another way that it can be handled. There's no reason for a border because there's no reason for the island of Ireland to be divided in the first place. I have spent my whole life being someone of Irish background myself, I have spent my whole life saying that the island of Ireland should be reunited. It should not be in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, the people of the North can
can declare a border poll and take a referendum in the six counties of the north of Ireland on the question, do you want to reunite with Ireland? And hey presto, if they did, they could decide as one country either to remain in the European Union as a united country or, if I were them, to leave the European Union like Britain. Isn't that screamingly obvious as a solution to the, uh, the so-called backstop? And this is one of the funny things. There's this, uh, I would say wonderful, but there's a memorable story of Reginald Maudling uh, going from the Foreign Office to Belfast. And this was in 71, at the height of the Troubles. And when he came back to London on the flight, he reportedly told the stewardess, get me a large scotch, what a bloody awful country. This statement is symptomatic of the fact that far from being the, the gung-ho unionists that they pretend to be when they have to win votes in Northern Ireland, most of the Westminster bubble, and this includes many Tories, even though they would never admit it, they would be happy to wash the hands of the perplexing Northern Irish question and to have a united Republic of Ireland with all of the counties on that small island being part of one country. The Brexit, pro the Brexit process and the whole kerfluffle over the backstop, again, totally artificial, as you say, it's made this sort of reality a silent issue that's going to become more vocal in future years. This is going to be amplified even more if Nicola Sturgeon, the uh, Scottish devolved leader, uh, pips up about wanting Scotland to be independent. I know you have a totally antithetical view to Scotland that you do in respect in, of Northern well, Ireland. Well, I, I just don't like dividing small islands. Indeed. Uh, let's go back. Final last word to you, Colla. Cleared everything up. Adam, absolute genius. <laughs> Cheers. Yeah, I told <laughs> you he was clever. You, George. I told you he was the cleverest man in England. By the, by the way, last time we were talking, when are you coming back over to Belfast? I'm not sure, actually, now. I mean, I've got quite heavy uh, work commitments uh, now, uh, but I'll see, I'll see what we can do. Thanks for the invitation. Anyway, I hope uh, it's uh, a few shared by everyone in the north of Ireland. I'm George Galloway. This is the mother of all talk shows. I'm joined by Ask Adam, Adam Gary, the cleverest man in England, and Samir Khan, the respected independent political analyst and commentator who has joined me again now. Uh, let me start with you, Samir. I'm getting uh, uh, a lot of skepticism on the tweets about whether Bernie can do it. Libertarianer. Uh, says uh, Trump could get closest, but I doubt he can win. Though it's been the least bellicose administration I can remember so far, though. So that's good. Paddy Jameson says, I'd hardly describe Sanders as a socialist, maybe left of centre, but hardly a socialist. Where Ben P777 uh, says, on the money here, Senator Sanders is an ethical figure. The world needs his politics. That's true, isn't it? Uh, he is an ethical figure. He calls himself a socialist, uh, which, given the history of the United States, is quite a courageous thing to do. But as someone who is on the left of politics, I don't really see him as a socialist. Give us the ontology of uh, Bernie Sanders. How do you describe him? He's a social democrat, um, which was created as a way to oppose actual socialism. So it's 
to uh, basically preserve capitalism, and that's what Bernie is doing. He has the same positions as FDR, who was a global centrist. Today, he's a global centrist. He's not really a leftist, but the U.S. has moved so far to the right that he's considered far left by some. Why does he call himself a socialist? That, that can't exactly be a vote winner. <laughs> you know, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez also calls herself a socialist. They're social democrats. And to me, it seems just uh, like a way to block actual socialism. Now, if they're presenting a social democracy as socialism, that limits uh, the debate to a certain uh, realm of political thought. Let's hear so, from Lizzie in Gloucester. Go ahead, Lizzie. Hi, George. Lizzie's one of our one of our one of our legends. You're uh -huh. welcome. I wanted to ask you about uh, Brexit. Um, I was very interested to hear what you were saying about Bernie Sanders, though. I mean, if I was in America, he would have my vote. Can't say a lot of my family are in America, and uh, I can't say that they'll be voting for him. But I do hope that they will, because as you say, he's got ethics and, and morality. I think he'd stand up for the blue-collar worker. I think he'd stand up for the working class. I don't think much of his uh, foreign policy would be better than Trump's, but not all that much better in some regards. But I do think he'd stand up for the working people uh, in the United States. And that's the kind of limited ambitions I have these days, Lizzie. <laughs> anyway, well, you wanted to ask about Brexit. I did want to ask about Brexit. I wanted to ask, um, a lot of people have always said, you know, uh, why do you think that the Labour Party won't leave the EU? Adam? Well, something happened to the Labour Party beginning in the 1990s and even into the late 80s, frankly. And this was a man called Jacques Delors, who was the EU commissioner. He seduced a Labour Party who was being beaten by their husband called Mrs. Thatcher on a daily basis. Now, Delors, like a Pied Piper, oh, we've got the Irish reference. <laughs> he promised them all sorts of benefits for working people that Thatcher could never give them. And in so doing, he betrayed trade one of the basic concepts of people like yourself, like Tony Benn before you, like Peter Shaw, which is that workers' rights and democracy are you cannot cut them apart. They are indelible. And what Delors said is, if you give up your democracy, because Thatcher will be in forever, as it turned out, defenestrated by her own party in 1990, if you just go with the EU and get rid of this quaint democracy in Parliament, then you can have everything you want. Well, Delors eventually went, and the EU revealed itself to be this kind of Vince Cable on steroids, but without the charm uh, version of politics that it's been ever since that it was created to be from the beginning and then someone who makes Delors look like a real lovey, the wicked Tony Blair came along. Now Blair was a man without principle but filled with ambition, that worst kind of individual. He thought that the House of Commons wasn't big enough for him and because he couldn't be a monarch in Britain he thought I want to run the EU and to do that I need to intertwine Britain and the EU more than ever before, even more than what Ted Heath wanted in some ways. These people are in control of the Labour Party in spite of the fact that its leader is a man. I have many disagreements with him. I admire him in other ways for his erstwhile honesty, or put it as diplomatically as I can. But he's being led by the tail. And again, that's 
putting it politely, by these Blairites who are in love with the EU, who have convinced someone that arguing for the pro-working class and pro-democracy pro policies of Tony Benn, of Peter Shaw, of Michael Foote, of yourself, is a vote loser. When the Labour Party actually won votes, it was with those policies. Yeah, well, and indeed we, we stood on a, a platform uh, to withdraw from the European Union under that well-known Bolshevik, uh, Harold Wilson. Indeed. Samira, do you, uh, do you see a comparison with, I do I must say, between NAFTA and what the EU has become? NAFTA left the rust belts to rust. It moved the jobs uh, south of, uh, of, the, of the river to Mexico. We didn't m lose the jobs in every case. We brought the cheaper workers to the jobs. It, the impact on the working class of NAFTA and the EU that we now know uh, with a single market, with a customs union, the post-Maastricht and Lisbon Treaty uh, EU has had exactly the same impact on working class people in Britain as the NAFTA had on working class people in the US. Absolutely, and I think it's a, a worldwide phenomenon. You see it in India as well. You see it in, uh, obviously, the U.S., in the EU. And uh, the only uh, solution to this is to end neoliberalism or find a way to block it. Lizzie, thanks for that call. I've got to make way for a second legend, and that is Damien in Brighton. Damien, welcome. Good evening, George. Good evening to you. Nice to hear from you. Um, George, um, phoning up about Senator Sanders. Yes, go ahead. Um, now, I, I agree with you, George. There's, there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever that uh, if he had been the Democratic candidate, he would have beaten Trump. Mm -hmm. um, that's evidence-based, George. All of the polling showed him not only miles ahead of Trump, but literally crushing him in the polls. Now, uh, you were, as I said, Samira, uh, on his team. Uh, here's a, a tweet to add to what, uh, what uh, has just been said. Bernie could easily beat Trump, says William O.S. 6. Bernie could easily beat Trump and polling confirms this. But beware, the Democratic establishment are beginning to favour Elizabeth Warren. Her tax policy is good, but she's against Medicare for all, against free tuition and is firmly in the pocket of the military-industrial complex. Okay. Uh, what do you think about that? Damien's uh, call and William Moss' uh, tweet. Well, Elizabeth Warren, it's looking like Joe Biden's going to be the nominee, and to please the progressive base, they're not going to choose uh, Bernie Sanders as VP. You know, he could possibly choose Elizabeth Warren to be VP. And I think even in that scenario, they would lose to Trump. Because right now, the Democratic uh, establishment has uh, basically created a situation where Trump can frame the issue, like, frame U.S. politics as, I'm under attack, vote for me, and that's going to rile up his base, and they're going to come out in huge numbers for Trump. The, the thesis that you need to run a woman has survived the destruction of Hillary Clinton's uh, presidential uh, candidacy. Somewhat to my surprise, but I mean, I can see why left-wing people, feminist people and so on, uh, are very keen on it. Uh, having lived through Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May, 
myself, I'm not ready to accept that, uh, that a woman leader is necessarily better uh, than a male one. Um, but what's your view amongst the general electorate? Can a woman win? Is Elizabeth Warren that woman? Or are there more electable women in the field? Well, I think that a, women, a woman can win. Not Elizabeth Warren, though. Um, there's a lot of talk about Tulsi Gabbard right now because she's seen as the improved version of Bernie with better foreign policy. Uh, I think that she has, she could possibly have the potential to beat Trump because she has right-wing leanings, and it's possible, you know. And, uh, get... uh, and a service record, Damien. Last word to you, appropriately on this, the first show. Uh, yeah, very briefly, George. Um, but it's not about Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn. It's about the platforms that they're standing on, which in some ways are quite similar, which are highly popular platforms. So the bottom line for me, George, is that the Democrats will only beat Trump with policy. They're not going to beat him with conspiracy theories. No, uh, and, but they also need a personality, don't they, Damien? Uh, I mean, Trump is, whatever else you say about him, uh, a big personality. A bland, you know, a, a Jeremy Hunt type isn't going to do it. We've lost our great legend, Damien in Brighton. Lost him only for the next uh, week, I hope. Um, look, it's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. Thanks to my studio guests, Samira Khan and Adam Gary. Um, Adam will be a regular feature on the show. So think of what you want to ask him for the next show. I'll be back uh, next week, God willing, at the same time. Speak about the uh, show to others, bring other listeners with you, and you can send your Skype messages at any time. We'll log them here and play them out next week. It's been marvelous. I hope it was for you. <laughs>